0: Okay, let me jump in with no further ado to 2 Samuel 7. As Austin was reading the text, it just sort of, the weight and the beauty and the profundity of the text really downloaded onto my heart in a new way, and um, just uh, as part and parcel of that, my own feeling of inadequacy, sort of like David says in response, which Austin didn't read, but after God gives this word through Nathan, this tremendous word, David says, He there's this beautiful verse in 18, the next verse, um, it just says, he went in and sat before the Lord, and he just said, who am I, who am I, and who, and what is my house that you would have brought me to this place, and that you would give me such a promise. I feel similar every time I preach, and the more the better, but who am I, and so I just pray that something of the power of, and the richness of this word is conveyed this morning. Um. (laughs) So not too long ago, I think less, just about a year ago exactly, I was at a table w- with some guys, some pastors in training, and there was a an old seasoned pastor um, who was a pastor of of one of the biggest churches here in town, and he um, he said to me, he shared a story with us, and he said, yeah, I had this guy with a ton of money. He'd been very successful in business. He was getting to the end of his life, and he was sick, and he was in the hospital. And we had a good relationship, and he called me, and he basically said. Hey, what do I need to do to get to secure a place on the bus? Like, I think the guy was walking with the Lord, but obviously there were some questions there. And he's like, I got to make sure, you know, I'm on my deathbed. I got to get my house in order. What do I need to do to make sure I've got a place on the bus, as it were, a place with God? And the pastor's answer was astounding to me and quite sad. I couldn't figure out if he was kidding or not, but I know he said this to the guy. Hopefully there's some follow-up. He said, uh, he said look, um, there's this new seminary. Uh, tons of students need financial help and supplies. Um, why don't you go ahead and write a nice check? <laughs> I mean, I almost laughed right there at the table and then conversely cried. I didn't know which to do, but I thought he was going to follow up with a punch sign like, JK, I shared the gospel. Um, but that was this guy's answer. <laughs> um, that was this guy's answer to the question, basically, what do I need to do to find rest? Like, and, Or, you know, what, what can I do for God that will guarantee me a place that's in his good favor? And this was the pastor's sad, sad and horribly wrong answer. Um, and it's easy to laugh at, and I, and I have laughed at it since and laugh now, but, you know, in the ancient Near East, that's in, in this milieu that we're reading in, in oh, 1000 B.C., um, or BCE, as the scholars would say, uh, it, during the time of David, King David, um, this was, every, every world system around him, certainly in, in the Middle Eastern area, worked this way. All religions, um, this is how they were traded. So, um, again, we talked about it a little bit last week, but I do a little something for you, gods. I give you a little something, I give you an offering, and then you do a little something or more for me. Uh, it's tit for tat. Um, and that's. But that's really the way... The world works. It's the way we still do things. You know, so, okay, 500 years ago, fast forward 2,500 years from David Martin Luther, that famous scene where he's, he's on the way home, I believe it was, from law school. He was a law student, as was Calvin, as have been so many people who ended up being pastors, similar skill set. But he was in law school and um, coming home, I think, on horseback and during a break and um, light in a terrible thunderstorm and lightning struck really close to him, and he jumped or fell off his horse, and he basically he cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of Travelers, I think, and said through her, you know, God, uh, he was still a sturdy Roman Catholic at that point, and, and said, uh, if you save my life here, I will give my life to you. And to, them, to him, that meant drop out of law school. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons I dropped out, I don't know. I didn't pray to St. Anne at the time, but... Um, if I do, you know, if I give you, if you give me this, if you keep me alive, I'll, I'll give you the rest of my life. Um, you know, we, we can do the same thing with, if we have an exam coming up, we kind of have some sort of transactional prayer, or, um, you know, Lord, if you get me through this, I will, I will serve you better, I promise, you know, or whatever it is. Um, or, or more seriously, a child who's ill or, or careening off the rails, um, barter with God, you know, Lord, if I've done anything wrong, forgive me. I'll, I'll shape up. Or if you allow us to pull through, um, then then I'll give you everything. You know, um, or, or if it's my health or the health of someone I love. Um, so in almost every area of life, we we do this. We do this with, with our with our jobs and, and our employers. Um, I work hard for a paycheck. I work hard to keep my job and to keep ho- hopefully climbing the ladder, of success. Um, and, well, we should. I mean, we do this in relationships. This is kind of the social fabric that holds things together. Um, I continually tell the truth so that I can build up credibility in people's eyes so that I can be trusted, so that I can have solid relationships and get more um, things given to me, relational even. And so um, this, is, this is the way things work. But this morning we see um, I'm reading into the text a little bit, and I'm taking a risk here because David was absolutely, as Austin said, a man after God's own heart. But I'll get to this. If we, if we flip a few chapters forward, we also see that he was an egregiously sinful man. Um, but he was a man after God's own heart. But I think we, we start to see that there might have been a little bit of precipitation of a mentality like this. Um, of, You've done so much for me. Let me do, let me do something for you, God. Um, David might have been here in danger of putting God in the same category that sort of the rest of creation is in that the rest of our transactions are in. And, um, you know, God, let me do something beautiful for you. I have all I need and more. Let me build you, what, a house. Let me build you a house. That's how the text opens, right? I have this great idea, Nathan. What do you think? And, of course, we'll get into Nathan's great response in a second. But um, with a word that is at once a sharp rebuke and a tremendous promise that can't be overblown, Um, God resets the bone, as it were, in David's thinking and in ours. Um. You know, he takes us from seeing our relationship with him in this text from maybe a transactional business or even a transactional friendship relationship. I do this for you; you do this for me. It's the way things work. To more of a relationship that maybe a more appropriate metaphor would be like: you've taken the life of my child. Maybe you hit him accidentally. Uh, Maybe maybe you're driving drunk. Maybe you took his life out of spite. Um, we, think, we even think of something like, like what happened in South Carolina in the African-American church uh, where the gunman just came in and started killing people, destroyed families. Um, in that sort of situation, um, restoration can't, it can't be made by the offending party. Um, it has to be if there's to be any restoration in, in in that relationship for the future moving forward, it has to come from the offended party. You can't just you can't make that better. You can't. There's no there's no amount of good you can do to make that okay. In the case of adultery, let's say um, an egregious offense, and God com- compares us later in His Word in one of the prophets in, in Hosea and elsewhere to adulterers. We when we sin it, it's like he's drawn us into this covenantal relationship with him and it's like we're committing adultery against him, our husband. Um, in that sort of relationship, um, whether through loss or through the rupture of adultery, infidelity, um, it's the offended party and the offended party alone that can restore. And that's, that's really one of the things that we see here this morning. That's the way our relationship is with God. Um, it's not tit for tat. It doesn't work like that. Um, and his grace knows no bounds. So we've looked in this um, in this series at, as Austin said, this is called Christ of the Covenants. We've looked at the covenants and how God is a covenantal God, and what does that mean? Well, in short, it means that he is a God who made us for relationship. He didn't make us to obey a set of laws, ultimately. He didn't make us to come down on his heart when we disobey, or any other sort of reason you can think of. He made us to be satisfied in him, to walk with him, and to talk with him, and to be in relationship, soul-satisfying relationship, to rest in him, which is one of the things King David does better than anybody in the Bible. Um, and this that word rest is actually prominent in this text, and we'll look at that. But to rest in him, but then our sin through our forebears, through Adam and Eve who represented us truly before God, broke that. It ruptured <coughs> that relationship that we were created for. And so everything um, about our lives ruptured and everything within creation that we were in charge of ruptured. And so the story of the Bible is a story of God not just cutting and running, which he could have done, either ending it all or, or starting over with a new human race. He makes a promise through Adam and says, through your seed, I will restore everything through one man. And so we see pictures of that through of that covenant promise that's carried on as we've looked in the past, what, four weeks, and this is our fifth week, and then next week is Jesus. Um, as we've looked at Adam, as we've looked at Noah, as we've looked at Abraham, and then Moses and Israel last week, and now here, David. Um, we've talked about his covenant being like, God's covenant to us being like a flower. It's not just a bunch of chopped up things that are unrelated. Like, I'll give you a word of promise here, and then a different one here, and then a different one. It's like a flower. There are roots, there's a stem, there are leaves, and then There's an actual bud and a flower on top, which is Jesus. It's all part of one movement of God toward us, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, accomplished in Christ. And so David, in his own way, points more closely than ever to that accomplishment that Jesus makes for us. Um, So we were in Moses last week. Moses and Israel, 400 years have passed, basically. God has now taken his people from the wilds, south of Israel, southeast, into the promised land. He's given them the land. He's given David and Israel rest all around as it were. They've kicked the enemy out of the land. David loves God. He loves his word. He's been obedient to God's word. He's trusted in God. He's rested in God. And that's where we find ourselves here um, this morning. And if, if you get nothing else, I want you to get this. God doesn't bless us and show us favor because of who we are. Okay, that's how we think. It's just how we think. Because we're broken and because everything else in our lives tells us that. I have to earn it. I have to be a, certain or be a certain person or do certain things. And in the other places in our lives, we absolutely do. But not with God. He does not bless us and show us favor because of who we are, but because of who he is. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, which is what he points David to. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bless not only you, but it's going to restore creation. That's my promise, and I'm going to do it. So David's big idea, again, verses 1 and 2, is I'm going to build God a house. Um, it seems great. And Nathan, um, Tim, Tim Keller, he kind of describes Nathan the prophet. His response, as David sort of implies, hey, what do you think about this idea? Um, Tim says, I basically, uh, Nathan is like, a typical pastor, a preacher to uh, to whom some guy with a lot of money comes and just has a blank check and says, capital campaign. What do you think? You know, like what, what would any pastor say to that other than go and do all that is in your heart. God is with you. It was just exactly what Nathan says. You know, he's not like, let me sleep on that. Let me go and pull away with God for a bit. No, go and do all that is in your heart. God is with you. But what happens that night um, God comes. It says, the word of God comes. You notice that? Little, glim- little glimmers in the Old Testament of how the word of God is, has personal characteristics. The word of God comes to David. And, uh, and, and, and basically blows that up. It says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Um, David's desire is, uh is good right on the surface it seems innocuous benign even even big-hearted and i think that it is i don't want to throw david under the bus here he's a true man of god but um again god's response seems to reveal that david came perilously close to thinking he could do something for god the religious or carnal man in all of us is always on the brink of this mentality always don't underestimate this mentality The more successful we are, the more prone we are to believe this lie, that I can do something for God that God needs, especially in matters that have to do with salvation. Success can be our worst enemy. Why? Because I'm my worst enemy, and the more success I have, the more proud I get. And I don't necessarily think David's in a proud place here. I think he really wants to do something beautiful for God, but I think that he could have slid into a bad place um and regardless he teaches us this lesson and God teaches us this lesson because how does God start when he comes to David he said I took you you tell my servant David which is a compliment Moses was called God's servant Joshua was called God's servant but my servant David that's our place I brought him from following sheep around which is kind of like being a garbage man or something which is fine a noble profession but it's lowly I, I took him from the sheepfold, from poking sheep and following them around, and put him at the highest place. And here's what I'm going to do for him. Um, Keller comments in a sermon somewhere, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, um, that typically those who are rich think that they're experts on everything. And that's just the way, it's not, it's not that we all don't have that innocence it's that we do, and that when we have a lot of something, it tends to bring that out more. And rich isn't just money, it can be Rich, and there are lots of ways to be rich, if you're really, really smart, or if you have great social connections, or if you have a lot of money, whatever it is, um, it can put us in a place where we think um, that we're experts in everything and that we can even begin to perhaps do God some favors. Um, David has grown really rich, rich enough to build a temple for God full of expensive fabrics, stones, gems. Um, He's not far from God by any means, but he's in a position that could drive him that direction. That's the point. God's sharp word of tremendous promise reminds him who he is, whose he is, and more importantly, who God is. So God's promise, what does it involve? Basically, in short, we're not going to get into all the details. It's Mother's Day, and I want to try to (laughs) get us out of here at a decent hour. And it's just such a rich text. We can't can't dig in. There are basically ten promises that God gives. Um, and basically, it, it reduces to this. I'm going to um, bless not just Israel and not just your house, but I'm going to give you a house, and I'm going to give you a son, and through him, he will reign forever. His reign will have no end, and it will bless all of creation. His reign will restore everything. There's lots of creational words that take us back to Eden that are sort of downloaded into this text, and we're going to look at some of them. Um, and it's sort of, here are some promises that are fulfilled in David. Here are some promises that will be fulfilled in his son, who ends up being Solomon. But then there are some things that are they're just too big for Solomon. Like Solomon ended up having, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines? I can never remember if it's 300 concubines or the other way around. But either way, a 1,000 women, and that's, that's a lot of Mother's Days um, <laughs> to celebrate. Um, and he really slid away from the Lord in his heart. Given Again, you talk about the precarious position that having, being wealthy in, in lots of ways, wise, having lots of money, um, anything at your fingertips can put you in. Man, I mean, the wisest man in the world, look what it did to him. Um, but he, he basically sowed at the apex of Israel's golden era, as it were, he sowed the seeds of exile. The history of Israel after Solomon is one of basically steady decline to exile. That's the rest of the history from this point all the way to the last prophet, if you want it in short. Um, so, some of this promise is fulfilled through David, some is perf- performed through David's son, and some of it is performed through David's uh, great David's greater son, uh, a, de- a true descendant of David and of Solomon, um, Jesus, who would be born a thousand years after this period, and we'll, and we'll, of course, we'll finish there, and then look at some application, Um, but before we do, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the Johnny Manziel, I think that was last week, right, yeah, the Johnny Manziel syndrome, where um, the Browns kind of maybe forgot, they got swept up in all the potential, and whatever, and they kind of forgot the old psychological truism, like, the best way to know about future behavior is to look at the past behavior, Um, and here we could kind of, and we looked at that with Israel, how God makes this promise to Israel, but they have just broken the covenant. But He still makes a promise. He reinitiates the covenant with Israel, and says, "I'm going to," and keeps it, and keeps it. Which is why we're here today, 400 years later. Um, It's like God didn't you? You're tempted to say, "Johnny Manziel syndrome." Like if if you just looked at what they just did, you'd know they're about they're going to break it again over and over, just like we do, and over being unfaithful to our promises to God, not loving Him from the heart, but loving. Myself first, from the heart, in myriad ways. Right? Um, we could kind of flip that here and say, uh, "Man, God, if you just looked a few pages in your Word forward, four chapters, namely, before giving this promise to David, you you would have seen he uh, he sleeps with one of his best friends' wives. This man after God's own heart, who's continued to continually described that way afterward. After this, by the way. And then has that best friend killed in battle to cover up his sin. And, and, and in that chapter that, where, that describes this, he, but God is not mentioned one time, except in the last verse, and it says, but God knew, and he saw the evil, and it displeased him greatly. And he confronts David through this prophet, Nathan. But the point is that um, God knew this was going to happen, and yet he promises this to David. It's an, therefore all the more overwhelming, and it drives home our point Um, God doesn't favor. He doesn't show us favor and love us because of who we are. But because of who he is. And it's his love that makes us lovely. We are unlovely. And it's God's unrelenting, unconditional love. And this covenant, it's going to be kept by God regardless. Although there are stipulations, right? Like, hey, your son, if he disobeys me, I will discipline him. But what? I will not remove my promise from him. And I will not remove the throne from his line, regardless of what he does. Even though he's going to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he's going to encourage my people to worship other gods all over my land. I'm still going to be faithful. So, um, is this this promise fulfilled in Solomon, David's son, or in Jesus, great David's greater son? Well, the answer is both, or yes, to be a little bit comical if you want to, but it's both, and a lot of Old Testament, to give you sort of a, a paradigm as you read the Old Testament, which can be super confusing, but one of my missions, if you stick with us in this gathering, and then hopefully in the fall as we start at nine o'clock, some equipping classes and such, and, and, and run those um, for the life of our time together, but one of my missions is to really demystify the Old Testament, because it's a beautiful narrative, a beautiful story, and this is one of the reasons we chose to do this six-week covenant series of uh that's actually quite elegant and simple with a bunch of graininess the graininess of real life in it where God comes in into the lives of these people and is with them and lives with them and is and promises himself to them but a simple a simple narrative um, and uh i I want to be able to help trace that out, but anyway um in there's a lot of prophecy that can be confusing, and one of the paradigms that we need to hang on to in prophecy is. The idea of progressive fulfillment. So, so many prophecies, I would say, I haven't tallied them, but the great majority of prophecies given, um, there's a partial fulfillment, um, like the day of the Lord is often described as the day of God's wrath where he's going to set everything right. He's going to burn away evil and judge evildoers and do away with sin. And, and then his people are going to be in a good place and he's going to restore everything. And he's going to come, and he's going to do it. Well, a lot of times, that's, that's, it's like given to, in light. It's said, hey, the day of the Lord's coming against one of, one of Israel's um, ancient Near Eastern local enemies, like the Edomites, who were sort of southeast of the, sea, of the Dead Sea, uh, and, um, heirs of, of uh, Esau. Um, so there are prophets wholly devoted to, like, railing against one of Israel's enemies. Well, is that the day of the Lord? Well, yes and No. It's a partial fulfillment. God did come and judge that people for, for lashing out unjustly in, in evil against his people whom he loves. But that wasn't the consummation. The consummation is coming. It hasn't come yet. One day when God in person comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He came the first time in mercy and he's waiting because he's a merciful God for all to repent, all who will, to come into to flee to the cross. But then one day when he comes again in person, not by his Holy Spirit only, but in person, he's going to come and he's going to wage war on all those who have not fled to him and to his cross. And he's going to finish what he started and he's going to restore creation, which means getting rid of all evil. So either he takes care of evil on the cross for us, or we wear that and bear that for ourselves. Those are the two options in life. And that is the day of the the Lord, the day of his wrath, uh, the day when all things are set right, consummate. And both of those things are packed in, kind of like a telescope. They're telescoped into that one prophecy. So that's the way things seem to work here. Um, This is too big for Solomon. He he can't possibly be the, the conveyor of all these promises of the restoration of creation. It just didn't work that way. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise given by God in covenant from Adam through Abraham, Israel, and David. All of them failed. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, one of my favorite Old Testament writers, he, he says this, God's other covenants, the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, are immediately tested by the failure of its beneficiaries. Noah got drunk. And this is one thing that if you speak with your Muslim friends, they cannot get over this. Like, to them, all prophets are holy and perfect. It's egregious that the Bible would go out of its way, not just not just have this stuff in it, but go out of its way to show that these conveyors of the covenant of these great promises of God that are held up in a lot of ways as men of faith in scripture it would go out of its way to show that like the next chapter in David's case what four chapters later they not only sin but sin egregiously and what does that remind us but of our point that God is the one who will accomplish his covenant we can't do it but By the failure of its beneficiaries, Noah got drunk. Abraham, in unbelief, followed their child by Hagar, his Egyptian servant. Israel worshipped a golden calf. Shortly after the Davidic covenant, David took a wife's purity away and murdered her husband. But in spite of David's gross sin and its contribution to his psychological decline, God's unconditional covenant with David stands. David's sin and spiritual funk, that's his word, point to a greater son of David, the son of God, whose eternal person sits On the heavenly throne of which David's earthly throne in Jerusalem is a type, a pointer, an arrow. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. Here's another quote. The Abrahamic covenant will not be realized in history if it is in any way dependent on the zeal of God's sinful people. We can't do what God has promised, so he does it for us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what David and Solomon's son point us to ultimately. Um, it's much bigger than any either of them. Um, again, it's a reign that extends over all creation, and, and it points us back to Eden. So just a few ways that it does that, really briefly. Throughout this text in 2 Samuel 7, God describes himself as the Lord of hosts. The first time that that title is used is in Genesis 2 verse 1. After God has finished making the heavens and the earth, which is the, what, the first verse in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, it's a way of saying he created everything. And then the next verse that recaps that, frames that at the end of chapter 1, Genesis 2.1. And it says um, that uh, it calls God, it says, when he had finished making the heavens and the earth uh, and all their host. It's the first time that word appears in the Bible. And here it is here. He's calling himself the Lord of hosts. What is he saying? In part, he's saying, this, this promise that I'm giving to you, David, is not just for your house. Again, it's for the restoration of creation. That thing I did back then that man screwed up completely, I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to fix it through this guy. It's going to come from your own seed. Um, he says in verse 10 of this text, I'm going to plant my people Israel. That word is also used in um, the first couple chapters, in chapter 2, I believe, of Genesis. It's Edenic. It's, it's a garden word. Um, he planted, he, I think most translations say he placed, but he planted Adam in the garden. Um, and uh, he says in the same way, I'm going to plant corporate Adam, Israel, my people, I called, who I've called to obey my word and who, like Adam, will disobey my word and who, like Adam, will get kicked east out of the garden. Adam failed. Israel failed. But where they failed, Jesus will, will not fail. Um, so through this one, um, I'm, I'm going to do what I set out to do in the beginning. I'm going to make everything sad come untrue. It's so much bigger than just you're going to have a king that's going to give you geopolitical security. These things in our hearts that cry out in, in the silence in front of the mirror or in the closet if you're weeping because life is so damn hard or, or, or whatever it is. That, this king's going he's gonna, to he's gonna fix it. <laughs> he's going to take it into himself. He's going to bear that pain. He's going to become that sin. And he's going to make things right between you and God. And that seed's going to grow in you as you trust in him by faith. And it's going to create new life in pockets where you are, where he's planted you in your work, in your families, in your relationships. And one day he's going to come. And all those seeds, he's going to make to grow fully, and he's going to make all things new. That's what this text is saying, and David just says, "Wow, this is so big." And he just goes and he sits before God and he worships. This is so much bigger than me. Um, literally, God again—that that word that's scattered throughout this text, rest. He'd given verse one, and then verse nine, he'd given David rest from all his enemies um Genesis two fifteen. almost every translation will say God made Adam and he placed him in the garden to work and to keep it Genesis two fifteen. but actually the Hebrew says it it's it's weird so it's not translated this way because it's weird but the Hebrew does not say placed it says and God rested Adam same same root God rested Adam and he put him in the garden to work he rested him to work and to live and to be in a state of rest. And what is rest? As Chris was sort of praying over me this morning as I was discombobulated behind the partition trying to game up for the sermon. Rest isn't inactivity in the Hebrew lexicon, in the Hebrew worldview. It's a fullness of life that God brings where our relationships are at peace, passing the peace. How we have relationships that are where we're at peace with each other, it's because of this, the vertical peace has been made between us and God. The rupture has been restored. Christ has bridged the gap. Christ has paid for our sins. Christ has done more than that. Christ has brought us back into sonship or daughterhood with God. And from that state of rest, that's where we're to live. That's where our work comes from. So, wh- wh- okay, so what? So this is what Christ has come to do for us. Um, and before, just one last point, and then I'm going to get to a couple, two application points, and then, we're, and then we'll continue to worship and go off to our Mother's Day brunches or whatever. Um, the last thing about this text that's so creational and that, again, takes us back to the garden that I'll point out. There, there are many more, but... Um, in verse 1, and again in verse 9, it says, it, the text goes out of its way to say, God, it starts off by saying what? God, when God had given David rest. Note that, not when David had won rest for himself, although David did lots of fighting. When God had given David rest over all of his enemies, from all his enemies surrounding. Verse 9, the beginning of God's response, I have given you rest. Do you tell David whom I've given rest from all his, what, enemies With all the other words in this text and themes that point us back to creation, back to what the rupture that happened, how God made things and how we screwed them up, and then where he's going to take us through this greater son. Enemies. What does enemies do? Where does it take us? We've mentioned this text before, and it's sort of like provides a guide rail that shoots through the rest of scripture. If you want to know what scripture is doing, Genesis 3.15. In the middle of the curse, after Adam and Eve have decided to disobey God, and because they were the guardians of all that god had made everything under their dominion also fell and was cracked and distorted like a mirror that's been punched and shattered hmm? we're still in god's image but we're just shattered in the middle of that curse god says there's a thing called chiasm mirroring it's like it's like literary or verbal mirroring i've mentioned it before and i'll mention it again um in Hebrew, it's a, it's a literary device that is like a highlighter or an underliner. Because they, they didn't underline, they didn't highlight, but the way of doing it was positioning. In the middle of the curse, what does God start with in the curse? He says, because of what you've done, and he addresses the woman, sorry, the man first, because man's the head and the representative, and on him falls the onus of our sin. He addresses the man, and then he goes to the woman, and then he goes to the serpent, And then from there, out back to the woman, and then he finishes with man. So man, woman, serpent, and then out from that, woman, and then finishes with man. You see what's in the middle? In the bullseye of the curse, the serpent. The curse to the serpent. And in the middle of that curse, Genesis 3.15, God enters the hot core, the bullseye of that curse with this promise. He says, because of what you've done, you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and your seed, woman, And your seed, serpent, will be at war. Enemies. And the word that, it's the first word in the Hebrew verse, it says, enmity shall I place. Enmity shall I place between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. That's gonna be something that drives through the rest of scripture, this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Satan. The enemy of God's people, the adversary, the accuser, the liar, who hates us and he hates God's word. But God says, through this seed of the woman, I'm going to crush Satan's head. And it's a really organic, and Hebrew is an organic language, it's an organic picture. How, how do you crush? We don't do a lot of serpent crushing these days. I lived in the bayou. I did a little bit in my day. Never with my body, always with like a shovel or something. But if you're gonna crush a serpent with your body, are you gonna use your hand? No, sir. I got, it. there's a guy out in the, in the back row, he's from the country, he's like shaking his head, he knows, he knows what I'm talking about, you don't use your hand, you don't go for the serpent's head, um, or for its tail, rather, right, you go for its head, and you go with your foot, and you go, not with your toes, that's silly, you go with your heel, and you crush that serpent's head with your heel, of course, that's just the way it's done, that's why they do it in India, man, I mean, those cobra-killing kids, holy cow, They brought a different dead cobra every day to our doorstep. And that's how they do it, no doubt. You crush that serpent's head, not the tail, with your heel, not your hand. And it says that the very thing that is used to crush the serpent's head will be struck, the heel. The serpent will strike the heel of this son of the woman. But with that heel, he will crush the serpent's head. And it shoots through all of Scripture. And Christ fulfills it on the cross. Because what do we get at the cross, but at the very place where he is struck for us? Where he became sin, not his, my sin, a vicarious atoning sacrifice for me and for you. That very place where Satan thought he had the greatest victory, struck the Son of God himself, God in the flesh, and killed him. I say it with reverence killed him, sent to hell. What I would have paid, he paid. Crushed. Crushed. That very place where he was crushed was the place of our salvation. And from there, after having made full payment for us, he rose from the grave. That very thing that Satan struck at the cross became the vehicle for our salvation. It was there that payment was made. It was there that death and hell and our sin was taken care of. Right there. What does this mean for us? Two points. One, one, Stop striving. Remember, this is God's promise to David. You're not going to build me a house. You can't do it. I'm going to build you a house. Rest in me and rest in that. We cannot earn God's favor. He loves you because he is lovely, not because you are. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? They were like, man, why are you spending so much time with notorious sinners? Not just people who sin, but people that are known. Like, what are they known for in this community? Sinning. He's like, well, because the Son of Man didn't come... Uh, for the healthy, or he said, what, a physician doesn't, doesn't go to the healthy, a physician goes for the sick. And that's what I've come for. I've come for, to save what? Sinners. That's Jesus's speciality. That's what he came for, to die, to live in the place of sinners, to provide the obedience before his father that we never could, and to die in our place. Sinners. Are you a filthy, egregious sinner? Man, the more honest you are about that, the faster you will flee to Christ and the more open his arms will be to you. The only people that he doesn't have place for are people that cannot admit that they need him. That's it. That's it. So stop striving. Beware of the tendency to build your own house. Remember where you came from. Remember what he's done for you. Let the gospel set, reset the bone in your thinking just to live out of a place of gratitude and humility. When people wrong us, like I wronged God times infinity and look what he's done for me. I can extend that to other people. Um, remember during this crazy election cycle, Jesus is on the throne. He's the king, regardless of whom we elect. He's the king. He, he puts kings and rulers and presidents up and he brings them down. And his mountain, as it were, of rulership is going to fill the earth. And his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Um, And, you know, so stop striving. But because we stop striving, once we get that, that that's what the gospel means. We don't have to work for God's favor. We can't. He's given it unconditionally. Receive it, knowing that you're a sinner. He died for you. Once we stop striving, we can start working. That's another thing this tells us, right? Because what? It talks about this new creation. That doesn't just start One day when Christ returns, it started when he came the first time. And every time we look to him in faith and just do what he's called us to do in our workplace, working with excellence, having the gospel on our lips, treating people with kindness, serving each other, his kingdom is being built. His gospel is going forward. People's lives are being changed. People are hopefully moving from death to life as they believe on Christ in our presence. We, the church, he has called This area implanted in this area, not just to see souls saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not just my soul stamped for heaven. The gospel, this text tells us, and the whole Bible tells us, is God came to restore everything, all of creation, and our salvation and our restoration is part of that. He cares about culture. He cares about these shops. He cares about West Hammer. He cares about Richmond. He cares about the fact that human trafficking, we're a hub for it. He, he cares about women that are enslaved to that. He cares about the strip clubs. He cares about businesses thriving. He cares about our being involved, going into jails where people just don't have much hope at all. Going into homes, meeting in homes. Um, because he cares, we ought to care. And as we plant and as we live and as we work and as we move into this area, He wants us to work for the restoration as we stop striving and rest in Him, believing the gospel, preaching the gospel with what we do and say. He wants us to seek the good of the city, to seek the welfare of the Galleria. And this is more, I mean, my prayer is that crime would decrease, not just in our lifetime, but in our kids' lifetime, multi generational call, as we continue to plant in this area, that crime would decrease, that strip clubs would disappear, that Business owners would be able to do business on a handshake and be honest and do their work with excellence and hire and see the prosperity of this area, not just materially, but in every way, to see homes restored, to see lives restored, and on and on it goes. As Christians, this is part and parcel of what the gospel means, of what he called us to. It's not, it's not just we come, we come and gather and we listen to a sermon and we go home. I mean, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. And and as new creatures in Christ in a broken world, as we abide in him and rest in his promise and what he's finished for us in Christ, we get to see his kingdom go forward. We get to see his care for culture and creation go forward. Stop striving, start working. Will you build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. God made good on his word in Christ. Remember that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Mother's Day. I thank you for moms. I thank you for dads. I thank you for men and women and for children. I thank you for life. And it would have, you, you are life. And you didn't have to make anything because you lack nothing, but you did because your life is so bounteous and overflowing that you just couldn't help yourself. You wanted to invite us into the life that you are. And you could have ended that. That was our just dessert because you're just but you, you took the penalty for our sin and for our law breaking upon yourself and into yourself. You became sin. You who knew no sin became sin. You not only were with your people in a tent in the wilderness, you, you tabernacled with us as a man. You are the God who lives with us, who loves us to the point of death, even death on a cross. You made good on your promise. Make good on your promise in our lives today. In Jesus' name for your glory. Give give these people hope. Give them encouragement in Jesus alone. Help us to stop striving and grabbing on to other false hopes. They're not they're gonna let us down. You won't. We love you. Amen. We love you, Amen. We love you, Amen. We love you, Amen.